when their son was going off to college, Ted and Susan gave him a Bible, told him it would be a great help. After being gone for about a week, he emailed mom and dad asking for money. They replied to the email by telling him to read his Bible. They even cited a specific chapter and verse. This correspondence went back and forth every few days. He would email asking for money. They would respond by telling him to read his Bible, and they would cite another chapter and verse. After about a month of this, he finally came home. He came home on one weekend, and in the course of a conversation, he just blasted mom and dad. He said, you told me you would be there for me. You would provide whatever I needed. You haven't helped at all with the financial situation of my condition. To which the father responded, we told you to read the Bible, and obviously you didn't. Now, he was flabbergasted at their accusation of his biblical negligence. Then eventually he caved and confessed, said, how did you know I haven't been reading my Bible? They said, well, it's easy. The Bible we gave you before you went to college, we put 20s and 50s and $100 bills at those specific places we told you to read, chapter and verse. Had you read your Bible, all your needs would have been met. Now, before you frantically start looking through the pew Bible in front of you, Let me tell you that we haven't stuffed them with any dollar bills. But if you hold a Bible in your hand, you have a treasure from heaven. You may not find dollar bills in your Bible, but you will find daily blessings for everyday life. We're in the midst of a four-part sermon series entitled Commitment. Last week, we began the conversation by asking the question, what is the meaning of membership? I'm always intrigued on how the unchurched would answer that. What would unchurched people say that we as churched people ought to value? What does it mean to be a member of First Baptist Church, Pelham? At the very least, I think those on the outside of the stained glass windows would have to tell us on the inside of the stained glass windows that to be a Christian means that you love Jesus, that you read your Bible, that you go to church, that you do some good. So we're taking that answer as the framework of our four-part sermon series. Last week, we concluded that to be part of this faith family means that you are committed to Christ. And today, we discover that part of the meaning of membership has to do with that we are a people of the book. We are committed to the very Word of God. And so with that in mind, I invite you to take a copy of your treasure. Turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 1 to 13. Today we want to think about the practicality of the Word of God, how you and I can be committed to God's Word. So with that in mind, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's Holy Word. As today we read Luke chapter 4, I'll begin at verse 1, we'll read through verse 13. Please hear the word. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert. 
where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place, showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it's been given to me. And I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God, you may be seated. Our passage comes to us on the heels of Luke's rendering of the baptism and genealogy of Jesus. On the one hand, it makes sense that this comes after the baptism. After all, that's a high climactic moment. It's a Trinitarian picture. We hear the voice of God Almighty when he says, This is my beloved Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We see God the Son as he's coming up out of the waters of baptism. We see God the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. It is a beautiful climactic picture of the Trinitarian God which we serve. And it seems kind of anticlimactic for Luke to smash in there a list of some 74 names. Because it seems as if the family tree of Christ is misplaced. I mean, why didn't Luke just follow the lead of Matthew? Just put the genealogy at the very beginning. We think it's there so we can just rush right through it and get over it. But why would he put it here, smack dab, in between the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus? I think the answer can be found in this. That Luke, above every other gospel writer understands that where the first Adam failed, the second Adam will succeed. In the genealogy of Jesus as recorded in Luke's gospel, it takes us all the way back to Adam. And Luke wants us to know that where the first Adam failed, the second Adam will succeed. For the first Adam failed to be obedient to the will of God in the garden. But the second Adam will be obedient to God in his will, and he will be in another garden. The first Adam introduced sin into the world, but the second Adam will destroy the power of sin in the world. The first Adam was selfish. The second Adam will be selfless. The first Adam introduced condemnation. The second Adam will introduce salvation. Where Adam failed, Jesus will succeed. And Luke wants us to know that Jesus is the second Adam. He is the one that makes good on all of the errors of humanity. And so in our passage, we are told that 
after the baptism, after Luke's rendering of the genealogy of Christ, that Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit, and that Spirit leads him into the wilderness. Now, Mark is even more graphic. In Mark's version, Mark says that the Spirit threw Jesus, casted him into the wilderness. Now, why would Jesus have to go there? Where historically, that's a place where people can meet God, but it's also a place where the people of God failed miserably. You recall the story that as God led the children of Israel out of their Egyptian captivity, they wandered in the wilderness, and there they grumbled, and they complained, and they whined, and they moaned, and they groaned, and they disobeyed. Where they disobeyed, God's son will obey. So Jesus was thrust into the wilderness. And it's there that Luke is Captain Obvious. Jesus has been there for 40 days. He's been fasting. He has not eaten anything. And Luke tells us Jesus was hungry. Can I get a collective? Duh. Of course he's hungry. Thank you, Captain Obvious, for pointing out the obvious. Yes, Jesus is hungry. You and I can't go 40 hours without food, let alone 40 days. When we go without food for any length of time, we get irritable, we get cranky, we get rude, we get obnoxious. This is the place where wives can elbow their husband with a sanctimonious wink and nod. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. And, and we know that when we get hungry, we can be in a weakened condition. It's in this weakened condition that the devil approaches Jesus. He's been tempting him all the while. But now Luke records three temptations of Christ. In all three of the temptations, we hear on the lips of the adversary, if you are the son of God. That statement should probably better be understood not if, but since. Since you are the son of God. The devil is not questioning the identity of Jesus. As if to say, if you are the son of God, you might be or you may not be. No, no. He is reminding Jesus of the word of God the Father. At the baptism of Christ that took place some 40 days prior, God the Father said to God the Son, this is my beloved son whom I love. Listen to him. He is the son of God. So the devil comes along and says, hey, listen, since you are the son of God and since you are hungry and since you're out here in a godforsaken land called the wilderness, why don't you just transform this stone into bread? The first temptation sounds quite harmless, I must confess. It's not a mighty miracle. It's just rearranging of some molecules. It's it's it's. Not a strenuous task for the Savior, for him to change a stone into a piece of bread, something that's hard into something that's soft, something that is not edible to something that is edible. I mean, this is not a, a big task for the Savior, right? It doesn't seem to be a, a big deal until you get to the heart of the temptation. What the devil is truly tempting Jesus with is to be self-sufficient, instead of submissive, to be self-sufficient instead of submissive. Since you are the Son of God, since you have given your life to this mission, since you are out here in this wilderness, since you're about to embark on a great ministry for God, don't you think that God ought to provide for you? The devil is insinuating, I don't think that God 
is taking care of you. I think he's holding out on you. Truth be told, Jesus, I think you can take better care of yourself than God can take care of you. You might just be a better God than God is God in your life. So why don't you trust yourself instead of being submissive so you can do this. It's quite in your realm of capability. Why don't you change this stone into a piece of bread? And Jesus responds. And he responds by quoting the word of God. He responds by giving a verse that comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Man shall not live on bread alone. The rest of the statement says, but upon every word that comes from the mouth of God the Father. Deuteronomy chapter 8 is all about God being Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. He provided food for them to eat in the wilderness. He provided sandals on their feet. He provided clothing on their back. In fact, they traveled some from 40 years and their sandals never wore out. He is Jehovah Jireh. He is the God who provides. So man does not just exist by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That our sustenance is not Merely in physical food, but our sustenance is spiritual. For as the Lord said to Ezekiel, we eat this scroll, we devour it, we digest it, and it sustains us. So the temptation that came to Jesus was the temptation to exchange submission for self-reliance. To be self-sufficient instead of submissive. What I find interesting is that the devil still throws those same temptations to you and to me. There may be a person in the crowd today who the devil is trying to whisper in your ear, I think God is holding out on you. I think you could do better at your life than God can do at your life. I think you just may be able to provide for yourself better than God can provide for you. You're cute, smart, adorable. Uh, you, you've got a lot of ability. I mean, you can plan your own life. You can do your own thing. You can make your own decisions. You don't need to follow submissively the will of God. You just be self-reliant. And the, the devil was defeated by the very word of God. The devil was not going to take defeat, so he issued a second temptation. He took Jesus to a very high mountain, and in an instant, he showed him all of the glitz, the glamour, the fame, the fortune of all the nations in all the world in a moment, in the blink of an eye. And the devil said to Jesus, listen, all this can be yours. I have authority over all of this. It's been given to me, and I have the authority to give it to whomever I wish, and I want to give it to you. I want you to have this. I want you to have all the bling bling. I want you to have all of Easy Street. I want you to have all of Glorious Avenue. I want you to have all of everything this world has to offer. I have the authority to take it and I have the authority to give it to you. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. When you and I look at the second temptation of Jesus, it is a great temptation. We sit here on a Sunday morning in the South in the 21st century and we think to ourselves, oh no, oh, there, it's easy for Jesus to overcome this temptation. After all, he is the son of God. He's the crown jewel of heaven. But keep in mind, 
He is completely God. At the same time, he's completely human. And you have not seen what the devil just showed Jesus. I mean, can you imagine all of the fame, all the fortune, all of the uh, accolades, all of the glitz, all of the glamour, all of the easy life. It's all there for the taking. When you and I listen to the temptation that the devil levels against Jesus, we must ask ourselves a legitimate question. The question is this, can the devil deliver on his promise? That's a legitimate question because he makes the claim, I have all authority on earth and it's all been given to me and I have the prerogative, the right to give it to whomever I wish. And we must ask ourselves, does the devil really have all that power? Does the devil really have all that authority? Is it up to the devil to give it to whomever he wishes? We must ask ourselves a legitimate question. Can the devil deliver on what he promises to Jesus? And the answer has to be no. At at the very best, this is an oversell. At the very least, it's an out-and-out lie. But regardless, isn't that how the devil operates? Either, number one, he's going to oversell. Or number two, he's going to out-and-out lie to you. He is the father of lies. He, he can't even tell the truth to help himself. I mean, he, he is one who is going to uh, reach too far, oversell, or just out-and-out lie to you in the hopes that you will do what he wants you to do. What I find interesting is that After the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus receives not only what the devil promises, but so much more. Do you remember at the very end of Matthew's gospel, the resurrected Christ goes to a mountain. He stands there with his friends, and Jesus says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and teach them everything I've commanded you. For surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Did you hear the first part of what Matthew tells us when Jesus is quoted as saying, all authority has been given to me, authority in heaven and on earth. The devil could only try to make the promise to give earthly authority, yet Jesus, because of his obedience to the word and will of God, not only got earthly authority, but heavenly authority, so he got more than the devil could ever promise so Jesus comes along and once again he quotes from Deuteronomy he quotes from Deuteronomy this time chapter 6 verse 13 when he says worship the Lord God and serve him only at the heart of this temptation is The temptation to have the splendor instead of the suffering. Now this is a mighty alluring temptation for all of us. To have splendor with no suffering. Isn't that what the devil is trying to promise Jesus? He's trying to sever the Messiah from his mission. He's trying to call into question the necessity for the cross of Christ. What he's promising is glory without the gory. 
What he's promising is a crown without a cross. What he's promising is splendor with no suffering. I don't know about you, but I know a lot of people that if that were true, if it were possible to live this life suffering free, most of us would raise our hands, say, sign me up. Where do I sign on the dotted line? Because most of us don't like to suffer. If it's possible to have splendor without suffering, we would say, sign me up because that's what I want. And yet Jesus understood that obedience, obedience to the word of God, obedience to the will of God, it's not all about splendor. Because Jesus knows that the cross always precedes the crown. Before, there is splendor. Many times there is suffering. That's what happened in the life of Jesus. That's what Jesus says will happen to us. So Jesus says that you will take up your cross and deny yourself every day and come and follow me. There's suffering in the journey. There's self-denial in the journey. Even in the church, we've been duped into thinking that God is preoccupied about our happiness. God is not preoccupied about our happiness. God is preoccupied about our holiness. And God will use any tool at his disposal to craft you and to shape you into a holy man of God and a holy woman of God. God can use anything, including the suffering, and sometimes intentionally the suffering, so that we will be fashioned and shaped on the anvil of God, so that we will be more dependent upon Christ, so we will know that the devil cannot promise us what he claims to promise us, and God can deliver to us far more than the devil could ever promise to give us. So, there may be somebody here this morning who knows Suffering on a first-name basis. You know what it is to have agony. You know what it is to suffer. You know what it is to suffer because of your own choices. You also know what it is to suffer because bad things happen to all people. You know what it is to feel pain. You know what it is to be heartbroken. You know what it is to, to be disappointed at the deepest level of your being. You know what it is to have suffering that is physical suffering, that is emotional suffering, that is mental suffering, that is financial suffering in every way possible. You may know what that is. And the temptation that, le that lurks around your corner is that temptation where the devil whispers in your ear, God is holding out on you. I can give you a better life. It was John Piper who said that the power of sin is that sin tries to convince me that I'll be happier if I follow it. That's the power of sin. The power of sin tries to convince us that somehow we'll be happier if we will follow it versus following the Lord, that somehow the Lord has abandoned us, that the Lord has turned his back on us, that he's somehow holding out on us. And oh, my friends, I want to tell you this morning that Jesus went to the cross and through the cross, and the cross always precedes the crown. And Jesus understood that there will be splendor, but before the splendor, there just might come suffering. In your suffering, I want you to know this morning, you are not alone. You are not by yourself, for God was with Noah and his family in the ark. The Lord was leading the Israelites through the Red Sea. 
The Lord danced with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The Lord was there in the smelly belly of the fish with Jonah. The Lord was there in prison with the apostle Peter. The Lord is always with his children. The devil comes along and wants to say, God is holding out on you. I can promise you something better. And this morning, let me just tell you, there are times when you just need to do a sanctimonious tail whipping on the adversary. You know what I'm talking about. There are times when you need to preach to the devil. There are times you need to tell him to get off your back. I don't know about you, but I had to have a conversation this very morning with the adversary for I had to remind him, you cannot allure me for I'm looking to Christ. You cannot entice me because I'm glued to my Savior. You cannot draw me away from Christ because I am bound by him. You can't move me because I'm leaning on the everlasting arms. You can't purchase me because I'm not for sale. You can't buy me because I'm bought with the blood of Christ. You can't provide me anything in this world because I've got a home in heaven. I don't know about you, but sometimes you just got to kick the devil in the teeth. You got to preach to him and you got to tell him who he is. He is a wounded warrior. He is a defeated foe and you are a blood-bought child of God. So rejoice because greater is he who's in you than he who is in the world. That's why Jesus says, worship the Lord and serve him only. Well, the devil is crafty. He is witty, but he's hard-headed. So he took Jesus for a third temptation. This time we are told he took him to the apex of the temple, the highest point. Most people believe this is at the southeastern corner of the Temple Mount overlooking the Kindred Valley. It's Josephus, the early church historian of the first century who said that if you stood there and looked over, any person would become dizzy because of the height. And the devil who knows that he's already been defeated twice by the very word of God says to Jesus, throw yourself off. Take a nosedive. For it is written, Psalm 91, if you want to check me out. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not even strike a foot against the stone. So go ahead, jump. Go ahead, do a nosedive. You know you're not going to get hurt. The God that you've been quoting to me has given you his promise. So you go right ahead. You just jump. I've oftentimes wondered, why did the devil take Jesus on this high point? He could have done the same thing on a mountain range, right? I mean, he could have taken him to a cliff and said, hey, why don't you do a nosedive off of here? Some people have said the reason the devil took Jesus to the apex of the temple was because he wanted Jesus to do this in the vision of the crowd. The only problem with that is that there's no mention of a crowd. The only mention in the text is a mention of location. It's at the temple. So why? What's the big deal about the temple? Well, the temple is believed to be the place where God dwells. The Ark of the Covenant dwells in the Holy of Holies. It's the footstool of God. So it's not like the devil just takes Jesus to any nation. He goes to the nation of Israel. Not just anywhere in Israel, but he goes to the sacred city of Jerusalem. Not just anywhere in Jerusalem, but he goes to the temple 
the very highest point, that point where he's closest to God in heaven. And God in heaven is the God who dwells in the temple. He relaxes there on uh, Mount Zion. He is there in his lazy boy. He kicks up his feet on the footstool of the Ark of the Covenant. And there, if God is ever going to make good on his promises, it's got to be right there. So the devil says to Jesus, jump. And for a third time, Not only does Jesus quote scripture, but for the third time, he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. This time, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. The devil was saying to Jesus, just let go and let God. Just trust him. Just jump out there. And Jesus was saying to the devil, don't tempt God, but trust him. At the heart of the third temptation is this. The devil wanted Jesus to exchange the spectacular for the simple. The spectacular for the simple. He was saying, Jesus, be flashy. And Jesus said, all I have to do is be faithful. Jesus, um, just jump and and it'll prove once and for all and and lost people will become uh, saved. And Jesus says, no, lost people are going to become saved not because I take a nosedive off a temple. It's because I'm nailed to a cross made of wood on their behalf. That's how lost people are going to be saved. I've got to follow simply the plan that the Father has laid out for me. There are many people who want the spectacular instead of the simple. They want a spectacular word from God, a spectacular movement of God, a spectacular testimony from God. And Jesus reminds us, hey, listen, don't put the Lord your God to the test. You just be faithful in the simple things. Because there's a great allure, even in our culture, for the spectacular, even in the church, especially in the church. And Jesus reminds us, don't exchange the simple for the spectacular. If God does something spectacular, great, Give God glory, but don't manipulate him. Don't try to stiff arm him. Don't try to back him into a corner. Don't try to coerce him to do you a favor. Don't put him on a test. You just trust him. He gave you his word, that's enough. You have his holy book, that's enough. When I think about the temptation of Christ, I'm reminded that they are both unique and universal. Unique in the sense that um, they can't be duplicated. They can't be duplicated in the sense that you and I are not Christ. (laughs) Only Jesus is the Messiah. Only Jesus is Christ. So in one way, they're very, very unique. In another way, they are very universal. Because what the devil does to Jesus, he tries to do to you and to me. He tries to entice us to be self-sufficient instead of submissive. He tries to entice us to... Want the splendor without the suffering. He tries to entice us to demand of God the spectacular instead of being simply obedient to God day in and day out. As I think about the way Jesus defeated the devil, I'm amazed, I'm inspired, and I'm encouraged. The same sword that Jesus used is the same sword that you have at your disposal. Jesus used the word of God to defeat the adversary. And you are a child of God 
and you hold the treasure of God in your hand. You have a copy of God's word. And when you do what the Lord said to Ezekiel, eat this scroll, then you live the word, you love the word, you study the word, it empowers you, and you have the same sword at your disposal that Jesus had at his disposal to adequately and sufficiently defeat the devil. So you have the same tool. You have the same weapon. I don't know about you, but there are times when I am always amazed at people who just seem to have a mastery of the Word of God. Does that impress you? People who just have a mastery of the Word of God, they, 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 they've memorized it, they seem to be able to recall it on a whim, uh, in a moment. It's just, it's amazing to me. And I'm kind of impressed by that. One of the individuals in my life who can do this at an uncanny level is my father in the ministry, Robert Smith Jr. He was also my preaching professor. Um, and one day in class, somebody raised their hand and asked the question, Dr. Smith, how are you so familiar with so many passages in the Bible? What is your trick? What is your tool? What what is the way that you do this? How do you memorize so much? How are you so familiar with the scripture passages? And I'll never forget his response. He looked at this girl and asked the question, how are you so familiar with the houses on your street? Because you live there, you pass by them every day, don't you? There was a hushed silence in the classroom. In a very sanctimonious way, he nailed all of us to the proverbial wall. You want to know the scripture? You can. You want to dive into the word? You can. You want to have it committed to your mind and living out your You can, because the same spirit dwells in you, and you have the same word at your disposal. Do you want more power in your life? Live in the word. Do you want more victory over sin? Live in the Word. Do you want more insight for daily living? Live in the Word. Because if you live in the Word and you'll pass by it every day, you'll become familiar with it, as familiar as you are with the streets of your neighborhoods and the houses that surround you because you're familiar with that that surrounds you. And if you dwell and submerge yourself in the Scripture of God, you can't help but be familiar with the Word of God. I'm always amazed that in this story, Jesus, he quoted scripture, but three times he quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 6 to Deuteronomy chapter 8. All three of those. Deuteronomy 8.3, Deuteronomy 6.13, Deuteronomy 6.16. Certainly he could have used other passages. Why did he use those? Can I make a suggestion? It's, I don't know that it's grounded in the story. It's just something that came to my mind. I got to be careful of that because some wild, crazy things can come into this old mind. But this is something I thought about this week. Could it be that the reason Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy 6 to Deuteronomy 8 was because that was the content of his quiet time that morning? Have you ever stopped to realize that what the Lord teaches you in the morning carries you all day long? 
Have you ever stopped and realized that? That something that you read in your morning quiet time, something that you read in your devotional time, that later in the day you find a direct application of what you read and how you live, and you get to the end of the day and you go, huh, that's kind of funny. Isn't that, isn't that weird how God showed me that in the morning and then he applied it in the afternoon? That's not weird. That's good theology. That's how God works. And maybe the Word read the Word. Maybe Jesus read the Bible that morning. I think he probably did. And in that morning reading, he may have come across Deuteronomy chapter chapter 6 to Deuteronomy chapter 8 and he said aha this is enough for me to defeat that wounded foe called the adversary oh my friend there's great power there's great practicality in the word of God what does it mean to be a member of this faith family well definitely we are committed to Christ but secondly from today we are committed to the word of God we are called to live in it. We are called to love it. We are called to learn it. We are called to apply it. We are called to submerse ourselves in it. We are called, like the Lord said to Ezekiel, eat this scroll. Because when you eat it, you digest it and it nourishes your body. And you are adequate for the battle. My friends, can we just be honest? There are far too many of us who have to dust off this Bible every seven days when we come to church. And now technology has really helped us out because many of us have it right in the palm of our hands. And you don't have to dust off your smartphone, do you? But the reality is when we open the scripture, it's about every seven days. And then we wonder, why are we so anemic? And then we wonder, why is the church so weak? And then we wonder, why don't we have power and victory in our everyday life? Could it be, could it be, could it be that God is calling us to live in the Word? And when you pass by it, you'll become familiar with it. Because the same sword that Jesus used to defeat the devil is right there in your hands and by the power of God may it go from your hands into your heart Heavenly Father we bow before you if there is one listening to my voice who's never accepted Christ as Savior and Lord I pray that today today they will see you as the mighty Messiah for those of us who are believers We know that we wage war against the adversary. We know he's defeated. He has a fatal wound to the head that was delivered against him at the cross of Jesus Christ in the glorious resurrection of our Lord. So, so we, we battle one who is defeated, one who, is, who has only a limited amount of time to wreak havoc. So Lord Jesus on this day, as your warriors, as soldiers in your army, oh Lord Jesus, will you please help us to wield well the sword of the Spirit. Oh, Father, we know this altar's open. Lord, as you're drawing people to yourself, families to join this church, people who want to make much of Jesus and make much of your word, Lord, on this day, in this moment, right now, help people to come and respond in obedience. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.